Well, as we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew, it is important to observe a few things that help us understand Jesus, his mission, uh, and the cross better. Since Jesus' last week and final hours takes up such a large percentage of the Gospel of Matthew and all the Gospels in general, most of them about a third, uh, we see the cross is central to God's plan for humanity for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him in heaven. Now that should deeply inform our theology, that should radically change our faith, as well as guide our worship and really be the focus of our message. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why would he say that? Down in verse 5, he says this, same chapter, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, that was big in Greco-Roman culture, but in the power of God. Now, also, uh, the four Gospels as a genre. What do we mean by a genre? Some of you are like, I've been in school a long time. I don't remember that word. That's a category of literature. The Gospel as a genre is really a narrative of the life uh, and the words and the works of Jesus Christ. Unlike the letters of the apostles, which we call epistles uh, or books sometimes, but a lot of times people refer to them as epistles, they explain the doctrine or the belief system of Christianity. The Gospels, while they do explain some of those things, I think they more than explain them is they show us doctrine. So Jesus shows us what the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of God is like. And then in the letters that the apostles write, they're really unpacking it so we understand what was going on when Jesus came. The gospels show us the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of the events of the world, even though much of what happens in this world he hates. Uh, The gospels declare the excellency of Jesus Christ. And I really believe with all of my heart, which is why I tell people when they're new to the faith, I would just keep reading the Gospels over and over again because I believe one of the main purposes of the Gospels is we are to read about Jesus and we are to see him and we are just to marvel at him. We're just to be like, man, this this is just an incredible thing that God would become a man. And as you see what he does, you see the fact that he is no mere man. Today we're going to see that Jesus is so powerful... And as the weeks go by, we're going to see he's so powerful, he even controls his own death. Now, here's something we have to remember through the entirety of what we are going to be studying for the next few weeks. Jesus is not a victim. Do we understand that? Bank that one. Jesus is not a victim. Yes, today we're going to see that Jesus is arrested, yet Jesus is in total control of what is going on. In John 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. But in the midst of seeing the power of Jesus, we will also see the darkness of humanity in its rebellion against God and even the failure of Jesus' closest followers. Yet in the midst of it all, we will still see the wonder of Jesus. And so I've titled this morning's message, A Bright Light in the Midst of Deep Darkness. 
So let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane where we left off two weeks ago. It's a few hours past midnight, so it's dark. And let's all go in the garden ourselves. Now let's hide behind a tree. We're going to hide behind a tree and we're going to watch what is happening. Verse 47. And while he, Jesus, was still speaking, he's talking to the apostles who are with him there. Behold, favorite word of Matthew means look, carefully look. Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude. Now, some people say it could be any, Bible scholars say it could be anywhere from hundreds of people to as many as a thousand with swords and clubs. One of the other gospel writers say they have torches too. That would make sense because it's the middle of the night. Came from the chief priests and the elders of the people, the religious leaders. Luke tells us some of them were with this crowd as well. So the last time we saw Jesus was praying in the garden. And he also taught the apostles about the necessity of prayer, the necessity of vigilance. And then Jesus said to them, here they come. Probably looking off in the distance, seeing the torches, hearing the crowd. Here they come. Now, Judas had already agreed to betray Jesus over to the religious leaders for money. We covered that in weeks past. And now Judas comes out at night with an armed crowd. So there's 11 apostles and there's Jesus in the garden. And they come, Judas comes with this crowd, this large crowd, to arrest Jesus. Now, this is one of those things where sometimes we read the Bible very quickly and we have to be very careful and notice some of the terminology that the Holy Spirit leads the Bible writer to use. Bible writer says, has Matthew right, that Judas was one of the 12. I just want to go like, uh. Even darker than the night, I believe that we are to see and to feel the darkness and the betrayal that is in Judas Iscariot's soul. Think of the enormous privilege that Judas had for three plus years, walking with Jesus. All he saw, all those miracles that he saw, all that he heard from Jesus, all that he experienced in watching Jesus, not to mention the enormous trust placed in him by Jesus. Remember, he sent out the apostles to do to do miracles and, and, and healings, and they were sent out to proclaim the gospel and the kingdom of God. Judas was even the treasurer. He was even in charge of the money. Judas Iscariot had the privilege to walk with the wisest and most loving man the world has ever seen, and yet he betrays that love and that trust. Now, I find it particularly interesting that why I go, Ugh. The Bible writers don't really seem to hate Judas. They actually go relatively easy on him. I don't know why. I always ask myself questions why this might be. Perhaps uh, just they respect the love that Jesus had for him. Or perhaps they looked inside themselves and they saw the darkness of their own souls. I said, maybe I didn't betray him to the Roman authorities, but when push came to shove, I deserted him. So let's picture the scene. They're at the Last Supper. Judas leaves. The rest of the apostles, they finish what they're doing. They sing a song. They go out. 
They're at the Mount of Olives, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane in the uh, events that we talked about last time we were together. But let's track Judas. He's left the Last Supper, and he went to the religious leaders that he's already prearranged his deal with. What is he saying to them? Hurry! Hurry! Let's go! Now's your chance. Now's the time. It's late. I know where he's going to be. I know where he's going to be. Now, Matthew told us earlier that the religious leaders did not want to kill Jesus this week. They wanted to kill him, but not this week because it was the Passover week and they were afraid of the people. But when the darkness knocks, the darkness knocks. And the darkness is knocking at the door of the religious leaders and on their hearts as well. And so we're told that the people with Judas were carrying swords and clubs. A lot of Bible scholars tell us, even if, the, even if we didn't know from the other gospel writers who was there, we'd be able to figure out who was there because the guys who carried the swords would probably be the Roman soldiers and the clubs would be carried by the temple police. Now the presence of the, of the Romans on this mission and the fact that they're coming at night when no one else is around lets us know that the religious leaders are probably afraid this thing could get out of control. Remember, it was only a few days earlier. It was only that. It's probably, now we're coming into Friday morning. It was only the previous Sunday when crowds were saying, you know, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A lot of the people that are there, and there's so many people there for the Passover, they think he's the Messiah. And so the darkness comes out in the dark and says, now is our time to arrest him. So a large crowd with hatred in their heart, weapons of destruction, come for a perfect and peaceful man, and they treat him like a criminal. The darkness has come for the light. Perhaps they represent the world. Perhaps the people coming for Jesus represent the people who are not followers of Jesus. And before you get all puffed up, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. Before, if you say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you're all puffed up, it doesn't represent me. We're the apostles. And as we're going to see, it doesn't go so well for us either, as they are representative followers of Jesus. And so, But perhaps these people represent the world, and instead of welcoming and worshiping their king, what do they want to do? They want to get rid of him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. Verse 48, things get darker. Now his betrayer, some, another version says the betrayer. Now, interesting, in the last verse, we, he was called one of the 12. Do you see the contrast? You got to feel it. Remember we said in this, in this garden scene, we talked about it last time, God wants us to feel it. He's one of the 12 and he's the betrayer. Hence my... Ugh. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Now that tells us a few things about Jesus. I know that you have pictures of Jesus hanging up in your house and he's an Irish guy about six foot two, red hair and good looking, okay? Now if that was the case, right, these guys were short Middle Eastern guys and then Judas would have said, get the tall, good looking Irish guy. But that tells us that there was nothing special about Jesus. The, the book of Isaiah tells us there's nothing about him that we should esteem him. There's nothing about him. He looked like a regular guy, so he needed to point him out. And it says, verse 49, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Hmm. He's betraying him and he kissed him. Some of you have very puzzled look on your faces. I'm glad. 
The rest of you are going, I know all about this. Well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. Isn't it interesting how the darkness often pretends to love and care, doesn't it? Yet it's merely a mask for its treachery and its betrayal. I mean, really. I mean, just think about this. I mean, (laughs) why couldn't he just have said, listen, man, I'll point him out to you and then I'll slip away. I'll make sure you know who he is and then I'll slip away into the dark. He doesn't even need to see me. But no, he says, I'll walk up to him and I'll kiss him. What does he think? Oh, Jesus is going to think everything's okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, pay no attention to the thousand guys behind me with swords and clubs, Jesus. <laughs> right? This bloodthirsty mob that I brought. Pay no attention to those guys. It's me. I'm here. It's Judas. I'm here. I'm here. I love you, man. Now, many Bible scholars and secular scholars believe this is where the term kiss of death comes from. So the insults that are here are absolutely amazing. First thing he says to him, greetings, rabbi. Well, rabbi means teacher. If you recall, we said at the Last Supper, all of the rest of the apostles were calling Jesus Lord, except one. Judas was calling him teacher. But make no mistake about it, not only is Jesus not Judas' Lord, he's not his teacher either. He's absolutely neither one of the two. Now, culturally, we're told that, that disciples didn't greet rabbis first. It was up to the rabbi to acknowledge the, the, the disciple. Because if, if, if you acknowledged your rabbi first, that implied equality. So this is more than just some sign that he's giving. This is a total insult. This is just like, hey, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Then Judas kisses him. Now, some of you guys are like, ew, right? But that's a, that's a common, it still is a, a Middle Eastern greeting uh, among, among close friends. And so what does he do? He comes up and he, he's using all the lingo and all the demonstration to indicate that I love you, that we are close friends. Does it shock you? I think it's supposed to. I think, I think that God is, is having Matthew write this on purpose. That we're seeing how inappropriate all this is and how gross all of this is. All right, you're going to betray me. That's fine, man. But stop with the stupid act. Stop pretending that you love me. You, know, tell me to my, you hate me? Great. Tell me to my face, Judas. But don't, don't put on this act. Luke twenty two forty eight. 48, it says, But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, man, how much nerve do you have? How far gone are you? I mean, maybe Jesus is just, I mean, feeling so sad for him, man. That you, could, you could walk with me for three years and it comes down to this? I mean, honestly, I think we're supposed to read this and say, One of the 12 betrayed him with a kiss? Are you kidding me? Like, how wicked can you get? I mean, seriously, man, bring a sword and stab me in the back. Okay, I get that. But you betray him with a kiss? There's something really scary about this as well. Man, when you look at Judas, it's possible that any one of us could be with Jesus. 
and could be with the people of God for a long time and not actually belong to Jesus and not actually belong to the people of God. Judas is what we call a false convert. He's a false disciple. He's full of self-interest and hypocrisy, unwilling to sacrifice for Jesus and the good of the people of God. We said before that perhaps Judas was just so disappointed with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be a powerful Messiah like the people did, one who would overturn Rome. Overturn Rome. Maybe Judas thought that, hey, I'm the treasurer, you know. <laughs> you know I'm going to get some big cabinet post or something, something like that. I'm going to control interest rates in, Jude- in Jerusalem or something like that. I'm going I'm to be big. And Judas seemingly just gave up. I mean, really, when you think of Judas, as much as it angers us, I think it should cause us to search our own hearts. Could we possibly betray Jesus in such a fashion? And also, I think, to be diligent, to not be so fearful, to step up to the plate and not be so diligent to really share the good news with people that we say that we love who are church people who we know are not following Jesus. And we all have lots of friends. They go to church, they claim to be this, they claim to be that, but they're really not following Jesus. And yet we're afraid. We don't want to make waves. The way of Jesus is a bumpy road with lots of waves. (laughs) And we ride Jesus' wave into heaven, but we're also going to make waves with people. I'm not saying being mean, but I'm also saying we can't be silent. Verse 50, but Jesus said to him. Now, um, for you Bible students here, the, the translation here, depends upon which version you have, the translation here is very, very difficult. Now, um, what's difficult about it is it's hard to tell if it's a question or a statement. Now, let me just say one real thing about, about, uh, about the Bible being the word of God. People say, well, you know, you, diff, there's different versions. Well, when you trans, go from one language to another, there's always going to be tra- people translate it differently to try, try to use different words to help uh, the audience that they have understand it. People say, well, I don't understand the old King James Version. Some people think, well, that's the version Jesus read. No, it wasn't. Okay? <laughs> so, but, but a lot of the words we don't use anymore. So that, or they change meaning. Words change meaning over times. Right? So... So, you, you know, years ago, you know, if you can, I've used this before. If you came to me and you said, oh, I was just talking to your wife. She's hot. You know, 20, 30 years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, no, no wonder she is. It's 90 degrees out. Now, if you tell me she's hot, I punch you in the nose. So, so things change over time. And so we have to be very, very, very careful about that. So when there's translation difficulties, sometimes it has to do with manuscripts. But, but none of the translation difficulties change any of the doctrines that we believe. And so don't, don't be afraid of that stuff. Other people would say, well, there seems to be some numerical uh, you know, errors in the Bible and stuff like that, okay? Yes, we, we believe that this is what we call the infallible word of God. However, let me put an asterisk on that and get some of you upset with me. We believe that the original manuscript penned by the prophets and the apostles is without error doesn't mean that the stuff that was copied by people does not have a mistake here and there. But none of the essential doctrines are changed by these things. So, but Jesus said to him, in this version, it's, it's, it's posed as a question. Friend, why have you come? 
Another version says, do what you came for. So one, one is a question, one is a statement. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, here's the thing. We've seen Jesus escape before. This time Jesus is in control. He's like, yep, I'm not going to resist. I'm fine with all this. So despite the actions of Judas, Jesus is still willing to call him friend. Now, this is very, very puzzling in a lot of different ways because we're not told what he means exactly by that. Some people think he's being sarcastic. Some people think he's being sincere. We really don't know. I wonder if he's saying to him, do you really want to go through with this? Remember what he's saying all along, he's still trying to get Judas to, to repent. He's not giving up on the guy. And, he, and he's like, do, do, do you really want to do this? Now, Every other time in the Gospel of Matthew, when we've encountered this word friend, Jesus used it to describe a person who took advantage of the grace of God. And Judas, having been there, perhaps knows when Jesus uses that word friend, he's saying to him, this is what you're doing now. You're being like the other guys that I described. You heard me say that, use that word many times before, and you're being just like those guys. Perhaps he's warning Judas, dude, I know what you're doing. But Judas does not take the warning to heart. Now, this is one thing that you have to say about Jesus that's absolutely amazing. Clearly, Jesus loves his enemy. I mean, he told us we have to love our enemy. And here comes the biggest slime bucket perhaps history has ever seen. And Jesus is still appealing to him, still seemingly desiring Judas to come home like the prodigal son. Oh, listen, he's going to the cross. He doesn't need Judas to get him on the cross. And so he continues to appeal to Judas. Now, he says, the the kiss will be a sign of who to arrest. That's what Judas says it is. But I don't think it's a sign of who to arrest. I think the kiss is a sign of, of all the sin against God. All the people who say, oh, I I care about God, I believe in God, yeah, 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 yeah. But then live their lives as if he doesn't even exist, showing us why the cross was necessary. Here it says they came and they laid hands on Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Jesus had laid hands on so many people to heal them in his ministry. And here the darkness comes And lays hands on Jesus. But even their laying hands on Jesus is so. Jesus can die on the cross to heal people of their sin problem. If they will only put their trust in him. Jesus knows that Judas won't turn back. We've already told, been told in the other Gospels that Satan entered Judas. It's a whole other sermon. But after his prayer that we saw a couple weeks ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has accepted his destiny that he is going to go to the cross. Verse 51, and suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus. Now, here we are, we're going like, well, I wonder which one it is. 
John helps us out. He goes, it was Peter. <laughs> you always see James, John, and Peter, the inner three, always, you know, they're always together. People think, oh, they were the spiritual ones. I think they were the ones who were always in trouble. So Jesus kept them close, right? And so here, the other gospel writers don't tell us who it is. John's like, I don't mind telling you who it was. It was Peter. Right? A little competitive nature between those guys. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke tells us that Jesus then proceeded. Everybody's around him. They're trying to arrest him. Peter takes out his sword. We don't know whether his aim is off. I mean, it's like, I'll get your ear. I don't think that was it. <laughs> right? He just, he hits him. And he's like, I'm a fisherman. What do you want? Right? And so, and so Jesus just stops everybody. Go, up, oh, easy. Let me just fix this guy's ear. It's like Mr. Potato Head or something like that. Now, let me put his ear back on. He's not even intimidated by the crowd at all. He says, let me, let me heal him. Peter, classic, jumps in. Don't worry, Jesus, I'm here. I'll fix this situation. Remember I just said there's hundreds or thousands of them, right? And here's one guy with his sword, right? One guy with his sword. I'll take care of everybody, Jesus. Don't worry about it. So lops off his ear. Again, Luke tells us that Jesus healed him. Why? Because Jesus loves his enemies. To me, this is so amazing and so not American Christian thinking. Jesus knows the cross is coming. He's in the garden. He's praying. Father, you know, hey, could, is there another way? No answer from heaven. He knows the cross is coming. All of a sudden, all these people come out for him. They got swords and clubs and torches and nasty people with them, all stuff like that. Would you say that's a stressful situation? I would say that's stressful. It's just a little bit of pressure. He's got a little bit of pressure here. And yet, he stops to heal a man. You know, well, what do we do? I'd love to help, but I got my own problems. I'd love to serve God, but I got my own deal going. I got too much going on in my life, man. Jesus doesn't say that at all. Not at all. Jesus says to everybody, hey, we got time. You got to wait. I'm just trusting in my father. I know, I know he's going to make everything okay. And I'm going to serve him in the midst of my own personal problems. Not only that, this is, this is why I marvel at him. <laughs> He's so calm and in control, he decides it's time for yet another teachable moment <laughs> with Peter and the other apostles. But Jesus said to him, the guy with the sword who lopped off the ear, it was Peter, Put your sword, now notice three times he's going to use the word sword. Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide with me, he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? So legion was 6,000, that's 72,000 angels. 
Now, 12 legions, it could be, hey, listen, symbolic of saying, listen, he'll have 11, one for each of you, 11 bozos, right? So don't worry. I could, if I want to do that, you can just imagine, like, do it, right? And Jesus goes, and I, got, I could have one legion for me. Then Jesus says this, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Another version says, if I did that, how could it possibly happen the way it's supposed to go down? Like, I've been telling you this is going to happen, but you don't understand me. You just refuse to listen to what I have to say to you guys. You just imagine the other guys are listening to them speak going, what is he talking about? And Judas is like, he does this all the time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people will say this. You talk to them about Jesus, they go, it is so unfortunate what happened to Jesus. Not at all. It's all planned. You think, well, what if God sends the angels? Some of us think, oh, well, it would be nice if God sent the angels. You know, we picture, you know, like, oh, here they come, you know, flying through the sky. For your homework, I want you to read 2 Kings 19. One angel comes and destroys 185,000. Did you get that number? 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Assyrians, the most savage warriors on the face of the earth. One angel, 185,000 in one night, and Jesus says, I could bring down 72,000 of those guys. Okay, that's not a precious moment angel, is it? (laughs) Like, oh, it's a precious moment. No, no, no. And by the way, if if he did that, it won't be a sword fight. <laughs> it won't be a sword fight. It'll just be this massive, massive destruction. But if Jesus does that, there, there will be no cross. And if there is no cross, as the scripture says, we will still be dead in our sin. That's why Jesus says it must happen this way. Jesus is telling them, I must go with them. I must go the way of the cross. Now, some people uh, object and they, they, they say, well, you know, what Jesus' words here are inaccurate. Uh, plenty of people uh, take the sword and don't die by the sword. That's happened, so what is he talking about? And so is Jesus wrong? Well, maybe you might think he is, or, or is he perhaps speaking symbolically? Now, it could be, some would say, well, it's like the Proverbs. It's not 100% true. It's not meant to be that way. It's just generally true. Like if you're constantly walking around with a sword, you're constantly angry with people, you're wondering why you don't have any friends, well, there you go. Others say, and they've used this in the past, that Jesus is just calling for pacifism. Now, I can't say that that's a rock-solid theology there because here, because Jesus said, put away your sword, not throw away your sword. So I think it's okay for self-defense, it's okay for the police, it's okay for military. Again, that's another sermon. And yet, here's the thing we have to remember. History has proven that places where people use force to get people to become followers of Jesus are the places that are usually the most closed to Jesus. Even still today, if you track a lot of the places where people thought it was they were going to go in and they were going to make people believe, they were going to use the sword, and the sword is, a, is symbolic of power and authority. 
that that didn't that doesn't get people to believe why because that's not how the kingdom of god advances it's simply not how the kingdom of god advances the kingdom of god advances through the proclamation of the gospel and the lives of the people of god if you weren't here wednesday listen to that we talked about that when wednesday night christianity is a word and deed Religion, if you want to put it that way, a word and deed ministry. We use the word of God and also people see our good deeds and they glorify God, not us. So what I think Jesus is saying here is actually very, very deep. See, again, the term sword is symbolic, often of of force and and domination. And the idea of someone saying we're we're going with the sword is we're going to go conquer those people and we're going to get them to obey. And while Jesus is is talking to Peter, I think Jesus is saying to everyone, remember, we're hiding behind a tree and we're just listening in. I think he's saying to everybody that's there, the reason that you're all against me is because you don't understand me. The people who want me to be the powerful Messiah, they don't understand me. You guys that are threatened, the religious leaders, you're threatened by who I am. It's because you don't understand me. And the loyal disciple, his buddy, who takes out the sword to try to defend him, Jesus looks at him and says, you don't understand me. That's the problem. Jesus is saying to everybody, when he talks about the angels, like, I come from another world. I can call them all down to fight. I I can call 12 legions of angels to come down. We'll conquer the whole world in five minutes and destroy everything. But that's not the kingdom of God. You say, well, how can you say that somebody like Peter and the apostles don't understand Jesus or even sometimes we as followers of Jesus just don't, completely don't understand him? Why? Because what does Peter do when he takes out the sword? He is fighting the way the kingdom of man fights. He's not fighting with the sword of the spirit. He's not fighting with love. He's not fighting with the word of God. He's not fighting with prayer. What does he do? He resorts to what the other guys are doing. Oh, you got a sword? I got one too. And that is not the kingdom of heaven. That is not the kingdom of God. We're so worried all the time in our country. Politics this, politics that. You know what God wants us to be? On our knees and praying for the souls of people. For the souls of people. For the kingdom of God to advance. Not how much we pay in taxes. Not all of this other stuff. I'm not saying we don't vote for what we believe in. But God wants so much more for his people and for our country. And so what Peter does is so easy for us to do and so common for us. And it's so common that we don't even see it. What does he do? He defaults to the kingdom of man. He defaults to the way the culture and the society and the way we were raised tells us to deal with things. And he's lost Jesus' way. You see, it's easy for us, and we don't even see it. We don't even see it. It's so easy for us to live lives that combine kingdoms. 
We combine the values of the kingdom of heaven as we're followers of Jesus and we combine the values of the kingdom of earth. And when we mix them together, we get this sometimes this ugly, ugly thing. Which is why people come in and they hear that they're sinners and they, are, they call themselves Christians. They're, they hear that they're sinners and they are offended. Instead of the right response going, and he loves me anyway. I can't believe it. I'm mixing this worldliness that here and I'm mixing the heaven together and he loves me anyway. And when you make that transfer from sin makes you feel instead of guilty and, and awful and angry and stuff like that, you we repent of your sin, you confess your sin. When it starts to make you feel incredibly loved, that's how you really know God is at work in your heart. And that is the beginning of the end of so many of the sins that we commit. You see, combining kingdoms is not God's way. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Jesus' way is the way of trusting his heavenly Father. And that is the way Jesus is going to take. And so we see something interesting in Jesus. We talk about it a lot around here. The, the tension we see, particularly in the epistles, in the letters of the apostles, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we know that God, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, and we see both in action at the same time here. In the one sense, we see God's sovereignty. This is his plan. Jesus is going to die on the cross. But on the same token, we see Jesus, the man, if you will, his responsibility. He is determined to go to the cross. You see how both of those are held in tension. They're not a contradiction. Spurgeon said they are friends that walk together in agreement. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, now he's teaching the crowd, right? He's, he's like, okay, all right, their lesson's done. Hey, y'all, y'all, listen up here. Come here, come here. Remember we said he's from Galilee. They talked with, a, with an accent, right? And so he's like, yeah, come on, y'all, listen, right? And I got some t- stuff to teach you all, right? So he's, what is he? He's totally in control of the situation. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. No sword, no violence. All this other people, they got their agenda. He's just, he's in, totally in control of the situation. The darkness is all around him, and there stands the light. He says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. I think he might be saying, you know something? You're a bunch of cowards. There I was. You could have taken me any time you wanted to. But what do you do? You come out in the dark. There I am in the light. In the middle of the temple. Would have been a short walk. You, you could have taken me, but you didn't. And then he says this, verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Let me just stop there for one second. I think Jesus is actually saying to them, you know what, man? You think, this is funny, guys. Look at the pause. This is funny. Listen to this. Um, you think you came out to arrest me you didn't come out to arrest me you came out to fulfill the scriptures you came out to fulfill what the old testament as we know is the old testament that the hebrew scriptures 
prophesize. You're all just part of the plan. You think you're in control? You're not in control at all. This is all God's plan. And then look what comes next. Matthew just adds it. Jesus is done talking. Matthew, who's one of them, says this. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Wait a minute. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said, you will all deny me, didn't they say, Jesus, you're on crack? (laughs) Didn't, Didn't they all say, no man, we'll even die with you? Well, yes, Jesus, we did say we'd die with you. We didn't say we'd wait with you. (laughs) So Jesus looks at the crowd and says, hey, man, I am easy to find. Stop thinking I'm hard to find. I was right out in the open. And that's what we need to tell our friends. That I'm easy to find. If you look for me, you're going to find me. He says, I'm easy to find. But see, the thing was, you didn't want to find me. You didn't want to know me. You just want to get rid of me. Yet here's the irony. What they are planning to do will make Jesus Christ the most well-known man in all of human history. It all goes to show that foolish and wicked man cannot overthrow the plan of God. Remember this, loved ones. Ultimately, the darkness cannot stop the light. It cannot stop it. Yet at the same time, what is he also doing to this big crowd? He's also preaching the gospel to them by exposing their sin, helping them to see their need for a savior. And despite the fact that in Jesus' day and in our day as well, most people have hard hearts towards Jesus, there will be many people who will come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, you just never know who it's going to be. You just never know who it's going to be. Then all, it says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. <laughs> if I was Matthew, I might have thrown in the word defective. <laughs> then all of the defective disciples forsook him and fled. So there's 12 of them there. And 11 fled. One didn't flee. Jesus stood there by himself. He's going to face the cross alone. You know, friend, that's the good news of the gospel right there. The perfect one is arrested and killed, and the sinners go free. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That the kiss of death, if you put your trust in Jesus, will become the kiss of life. Eternal life with God. The last time we tied it a little bit to the Garden of of Eden, so I want to do that a little bit again. Um, At the beginning of the Bible, Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and he was tossed out because of his sin. Uh, We would say that he was was banished, if you will, from, from fellowship with God, from having perfect fellowship with God. And and Genesis 3.24 says this, So he, God, drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim, that would be an angel, uh, stop at the precious moments, angel, uh, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. So, so, So the angel is there guarding the entrance to the perfect presence of God. And a flaming sword, which turned every way, 
to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's an angel with a flaming sword keeping man out of the presence of God. Yet this night, the sword came to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden, not to keep Jesus out of the garden, but to take Jesus out of the garden. Not to keep him out, but to take him out. Where he could die on the cross and be away from the presence of God, where he would yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ faced the the sword of man, the power of, of death, and the power of the darkness. But by dying on the cross for our sins, he removed that sword that keeps us from God's presence. It's all of a sudden like the angel that's guarding the Garden of Eden is relieved of his post. That means that Jesus Christ left the garden and was what Adam was booted out. Jesus Christ willingly left the presence of his heavenly father to die for you instead of you for your sins. Why? So now when you go to the perfect presence of God, there will be no angel with no sword that will stop you from entering into his perfect presence. In other words, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, whereas if Adam had tried to get back in, he would have been slain. Now all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ can come to God without fear of the sword, without fear of punishment for their sins. That's because Jesus was to follow his heavenly father's plan where he would take the punishment for your sins on the cross and to prove that God was satisfied with what he did, he rose him from the dead. So whoever, and whether you're one of the guys who nailed him to that cross or you're one of the disciples who ran away, whoever would turn to God and put their trust in Jesus could have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Despite our sin, Jesus Christ heard the call of heaven and chose to die on the cross for you. He chose to die for you. And today, Jesus calls you to choose him. My prayer today is that we would all marvel at such a bright light, Jesus Christ, in the midst of great darkness. And we would fall on our knees and worship our King, whether today is for the first time in your life and you can come up front and pray with somebody here after the service, or maybe you've been a Christian a long time, but we marvel at the light that has come to this dark world. Well, let's stand and pray.